Okay, great. Uh, thank you again for your welcome. It's very good to be here. I'm going to pray again and then we'll um, think about God's word. Uh, great Heavenly Father, we, we've prayed it already, we've, we've sung it, we've, we've prayed it, uh, but we ask for your help very much now as we uh, consider your word. Father, we, we have no good apart from you, uh, and so we pray that you will meet with us, that you will open our hearts and our minds to consider what you are speaking to us, and that you, in your great kindness, we appeal to your great kindness that you will do good to us uh, in these moments we have together, for Christ's sake. Amen. Uh, leadership. Um, what is the secret of leadership? Uh, Mark Zuckerberg, the founder of Facebook, um, he's a little bit out of, kind of out of favour at the moment, but you know he is a, he's a, 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 one of the most influential leaders of our time. And um, for him, one of the secrets of leadership is his clothing. And whether you've heard this, uh, he wears the same T-shirt every single day, um, and he's asked about it. And he says, um, I don't want to get distracted about thinking about small things. Uh, he says, I really want to clear my life so that I have to make as few decisions as possible about anything except how to best serve this community. It's about clothing. Now, you might not be impressed with Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, so Barack Obama, no less. One of the greatest leaders of our time, perhaps. We'll talk to me about it afterwards if you want. Um, in an interview with Vanity Fair, he explains why he wears the same suits. Every day, he says, I'm trying to pare down decisions. I don't want to make decisions about what I'm eating or wearing because I have too many other decisions to make. So the best leaders do not care about clothing, note it. Um, this is very comforting for me because a few years ago um, I decided I needed a new t-shirt. I don't like going to the shops, so I went onto Amazon and I found this very simple black t-shirt for £3. Um, so I, I thought I'd buy it. In fact, I thought, well, save myself the time, I'll buy two. What I didn't notice was that these were actually packs of three. So I ended up with six black t-shirts. It was wonderful. I, I was sorted. I don't have to wear anything else. Um, not surprisingly, somehow they have gone missing over the years. Um, I don't know why that happened. Um, what's the point of this? We live in a society that is obsessed with leadership. And maybe that's right, and maybe it's wrong, but as a church, we can't escape it, can we? Now, the church is in the world. That's a fact, isn't it? That God Almighty he sent his son on a redeeming mission into the world, right? Right to the cross, right into death, out on the other side, now risen and ascended. The Lord Jesus is calling to himself his people, gathering his people together um, into churches. Um, all those who call on the name of Christ are trusting him for the forgiveness of sins, are part of his body, part of the church. Uh, and the church, the body of Christ, uh, is in the world. Uh, as Christ Church Camborne, you are in this world, and yet as believers, Paul writes to the Philippians and says, your citizenship, your identity, your place of belonging is not here, your citizenship is in heaven. Now what does that mean for leadership in the church? Uh, our subject this morning is elders, eldership. And we're not going to be able to say all that there is to say, but we'll say a few things um, but because the church is in the world, and yet the church does not belong to the world, what does that mean for leadership in the church? Because I, I imagine that many of you have lots of ideas about leadership. Uh, I imagine that there are somewhere in your workplaces, people speak about nothing other than leadership. 
And that brings a challenge, doesn't it? The challenge that we, we bring all those definitions of leadership into the church without considering whether they rightly apply to this organism that is in the world but is not belonging to the world. Uh, Abraham Lincoln apparently was fond of asking people this question. He would say, uh, if you call a tail a leg, how many legs does a dog have? People would think about it. If you call a tail a leg, how many, how many legs does a dog have? And they would say five. And he would say, no. The correct answer is four. Calling something a leg doesn't make it a leg. If you call someone an elder... Uh, but you expect them to be a kind of Mark Zuckerberg or, or like your boss at work or like the captain of your sports team, and um, we may be in danger of calling a tail a leg. So what are elders? Uh, why do churches have them? How do we relate to them? Uh, let's bring our thoughts to this beach in Miletus, uh, our reading from Acts chapter 20. Uh, Paul has lived in Ephesus for some time. During his time there, Acts 19.20 tells us, The word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. But he's left. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He's been traveling around encouraging the new believers, but he wants to get to Jerusalem. In fact, in verse 16 of chapter 20, it says he's in a hurry to get to Jerusalem. So instead of going all the way back to Ephesus uh, to say goodbye, he, he stops at Miletus and he summons the elders of the church in Ephesus to meet him there. That's what we have in our passage. It's a very emotional meeting. Um, It ends with weeping as they say goodbye. It's a final goodbye. Paul says he he doesn't expect to see them again. So so there's this this deep love, this deep sadness, as Paul brings this message to the elders of Ephesus. Now, there are roughly two parts to the passage. And the first part is there is a reminder of gospel gain in the grit. Verses 17 to 27. Uh, Paul reminds the uh, Ephesian elders of how he ministered the gospel among them in the face of ever-increasing opposition. There was gospel gain in the grit. Now look at verse 18 as he starts. He launches his speech, reminding them how he lived among them. Right, Right from the start, his time among them was characterized by tears, he says, and severe testing. That's the grit. He was up against it. And the reason that he was opposed was that he was obstinately committed to the faithful and full teaching of the gospel. He says, I've not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. With tears and testing, he taught the gospel. He didn't compromise, he didn't hold anything back. And so he says in verse 26, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you for I've not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. He's held nothing back. He's told them all that they need for salvation. He's opened up to them the whole will, the whole counsel of God. And now he's moving on. Or perhaps he's being moved on. In verse 22, he is compelled by the Spirit. God is moving Paul to Jerusalem. And what does he expect? Well, he doesn't know what will happen, but he says in verse 26, the thing he does know is that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. And he says that in the context of speaking to these elders and saying, you're not going to see me again. He's under no pretense about the cost it's going it's to be for him to keep faithful to the gospel. But he says, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. 
And Paul knows the grit will only get more gritty. The opposition he's experienced so far is not going away. It's only going to get worse. Gospel gain in the grit. Paul reminds the Ephesian elders of how he testified to the good news of God's grace in the face of increasing opposition. Why? Why does he tell them all of that? Now, why is that the content of his goodbye speech to them? Or why don't they just celebrate the good times and move on? Or why is this the thing that Paul wants these elders to hear? I think that thinking about those questions will lead us to see what eldership is all about. Uh, the first thing, the first reason why I think Paul reminds them of gospel gaining the grit is that Paul's experience is not unique to him. Now, a bit later, when Paul writes to Timothy, who receives the letter in Ephesus as he's ministering at the church in Ephesus, 2 Timothy 3 verse 1, uh, Paul says, Mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. There will be terrible times in the last days. And Paul's not warning Timothy about the distant future. Paul's telling Timothy about what's happening to him. Now, the last days includes all the time from the ascension of Christ to the return of Christ. That the age of the church is the last days. And Paul says these days are terrible. In fact, he goes on in 1 Timothy 3 to say, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, do you find yourself in that number? Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. In our passage in verse 23, when Paul says, hardships are facing me, it's the word which is translated otherwise, other, in other places as tribulations. A word often associated with the end of the end. It goes back to Daniel's prophecy in Daniel chapter 12, where we hear the infamous prophecy of great tribulation preceding the final day of resurrection and judgment. The same word that Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians 3 when he says, these trials, these tribulations, we are destined for them. That climactic end of all time tribulation has already begun in the church now the times of the church that age between christ's two appearings uh, this is an age marked out by troubles by tribulation uh, and this tribulation these troubles have got a very particular agenda now let's just take a, a step back a little bit and consider um Consider something of the pattern of God's saving purposes for all time. God's mission to the world began in creation, didn't it? Uh, he created a place of blessing. He created people, his image bearers, to live in the place of blessing. And he commissioned them. Adam and Eve had to, had to expand the borders of the place of blessing, the borders of the Garden of Eden, until the whole earth was full of God's glory. And within that, Adam had a task to guard the, 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 the garden. He had to guard the borders of the garden. And he had to do that because outside the garden, there lurked a fearsome opponent. Adam failed, of course, didn't he? And that snake, that, that, that tempter, entered the garden. And in Genesis 3, the snake poured doubt upon God's word. He challenged God's authority. He lured the first couple away from fidelity to their maker, and they sinned. Now, in the face of that first satanic trial... In the face of that original deception, Adam fell, and the world with him. And all his offspring were caught up in that act of rebellion. 
Uh, but then the gospel, the, in the fullness of time, a second Adam came and walked the earth. Uh, the Lord himself took on flesh, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And at his baptism, when Christ came out of the water, the heavens were opened and the Father declared, this is my, my beloved Son. I'm pleased with him. And then he was whisked into the wilderness. The Christ, the Lord Jesus, was taken into the desert. Yeah. And just like in Genesis 3, the Satan attacked. And he poured doubts upon God's word. And he, he challenged God's authority. And he, he tried to lure the second Adam away from fidelity to his father. But where Adam fell, Jesus stood firm. In the face of those satanic trials, the second Adam overcame. And Revelation 14 verse 4 tells us that the church, the people of Christ, they follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. And the body of Christ in these last days faces satanic attack. That the church is included in those trials of Christ. And when Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, he tells them that. In that famous passage in Ephesians 6, says, be strong in the Lord and in the might of his power. Put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. And the nature of this tribulation, the nature of these trials, is to lure people away from fidelity to their saviour. Deception. Evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Just like in Genesis 3. The angle of attack is exactly the same. The, the angle of, of the satanic attack is against fidelity to God's word. Just like for Jesus in the wilderness. The angle of attack is against fidelity to God's word. And now that same angle of attack is experienced in the body of Christ as we wait for his return. And if the church turns from the word of God, then the lifeline is cut. The church comes into being through the word. The church is sustained in its life. It grows by that word. And if the deceivers deceive, and if faith is redirected from the Christ, then the church falls. Now the tribulations of this age, the tribulations facing this church, will have many different manifestations, but the aim of them is always to draw people away from Christ. And so Paul reminds these Ephesian elders about gospel gain in the grit because the grit is their context in which they must hold on to the gospel. In fact, you see that back in Acts 14. In Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas preach the word. And a large number turn to Christ. They, they travel around to encourage the believers. It says in Acts 14.22 that they, they're strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. And then they say, this is their encouragement. We must go through many hardships. It's the same word, tribulations. We must go through many tribulations to enter the kingdom of God. And in the next verse, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church. First mention of appointing elders in the Bible. And it comes in the context of the need for the church to stand firm in the face of tribulation. That's what we see in this passage in Acts 20, isn't it? Verse 29, Paul says... I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. What does that attack look like? Well, he explains, even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. Now, just like Adam was tasked 
to guard the borders of the garden and not let the deceiver in, not let deception come in. In a similar way, elders are appointed to guard the church from deception. A bit more of that in a moment, but this, this gospel gain in the grit. Paul reminds the Ephesian elders that he testified to the good news of God's grace in the face of increasing opposition because that's the context in which these elders are to go on. But I think he's also reminding them of this because there is an inestimable price on the church. Here he's broadly speaking these two parts of this passage in Acts 20. Uh, the first part, there's this reminder of the gospel gain in the grit in verse 17 to 27. And then in verse 28, we meet the first of two direct instructions. Now the focus now shifts from what Paul has done to what the elders must do. From what Paul has done to what the elders must do. And as Paul makes that shift, then with some of the most astonishing words in the whole Bible, he impresses on these elders the inestimable price that he's been put on the church. Look at verse 28. Second half of the verse, he says, Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. The church of God, which he bought with his own blood. God is not like us. Not like us at all. In the infinity of his divine excellence, he's a perfect and a complete act, which means that not only is he unchanging, but he cannot be changed. He cannot be moved or acted upon. God can't be pushed. You can't shake God. You can't hurt God. You can't do anything to stop him being what he is. He's enthroned in the heavens. He's not subject to anyone or anything because he's God. And what that means is that God does not bleed. God does not suffer and he cannot die. And if God does those things, he's no longer God. And so Paul, with all the weight of biblical orthodoxy on his shoulders, for, for Paul, of all people, to speak of the blood of God is staggering. It may not hit us like it ought to, but it ought to hit us full in the face. The blood of God? God does not bleed. That's why Christmas is essential to our salvation, isn't it? At Christmas, the most mind-blowing miracle of all time occurs. A miracle that dwarfs even the creation of the universe. Because at Christmas, the one true God takes to himself the nature of a man. And specifically, the second person of the Trinity. The Son of God, who's essentially God in all of his godness, he added onto his person a, the, the, the nature of a man. He, he became, he was made to be what he had not been without stopping being what he had always been. He didn't change his divinity. It's not possible for him to change. God does not change. But he added to his person a human nature so that in the person of the Son exist the, both the two natures of, of God and man, brilliantly brought together without being confused or confounded or distorted in any possible way. The incarnation is the most incomprehensible act of God. Now the word of the carol says, Our God contracted to a span, incomprehensibly made man. You see, for God to pay the price that was set on the church, he had to act the most immense miracle of all time. He had to take to his own self the nature of a man. He had to add it on. He, he had to do it so that he could bleed and die. And so that God, in the person of his Son, that, that by his human nature he could bleed the payment for the church. So that God, in his human nature, could 
die to pay the price to, to, to release the church from the jaws of death and deliver the people he came to save from the claims of hell. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the inestimable price set on the church. Now the church is a funny old thing, isn't it? Now in our society, the church is at best maligned, it's most often ignored. Now even among believers, the church can feel pretty unimpressive. We bumble along and we stumble and we fall and we get caught up in so many needless distractions. We can be very unattractive. But even though we may so often treat the church to be of such small value, that's not what God does. That's not how God sees it. What does God make of the church? He bought it with his own blood. He crossed the span of infinity. He bridged the unbridgeable divide. He plunged himself into all the horrors of hell through the agonies of Calvary. And he did it for the sake of the church. Now why does Paul meet with these Ephesian elders and remind them about this gospel gain in the grit? It's because of the church. Because the church is worth it. And more than worth it, because the church is assigned this value that cannot be measured. The church of God is bought with his own blood. Now, why should you care about eldership in your church? I don't know if you do or not. Don't need to tell me that. Please don't tell your elders. Um, why should you care about eldership in your Why does any of this matter? It matters because you're a church. The Christ Church Camborne is a church, and, and therefore you're subject to tribulations. That's, that's what you're destined for. Now, Jesus promises it. He says, in this world, you will have troubles. Be sure of it. Now, in these last days, there will be terrible times. The deceiver will deceive with a thousand deceptions. He will try to draw you from Christ by any means necessary. He will beat on you, and he will seduce you, and he will batter you, and he will whisper sweet lies. Anything to get you to fall away from the word of God. That's your context. If you fail to realize that that's your context, you are in a dangerous place. But you are a church. And in all the tribulations that you will face, you are those who are bought with the blood of God. The payment has been made. It's unmatchable. Your eternity has been gained through the blood of Christ. Your debt has been cancelled. The curse has been lifted. Your death has been made into life. The love of God has been outrageously lavished upon you. So often though, isn't it, we just fail to realise how astonishing it is to be included in the church of God. There is an inestimable price placed on you. And so in Acts 14, when Paul says we must go through tribulations to enter the kingdom of God, the solution to that tribulation, the organisational solution, is that they appointed elders for them in each church. Gospel gain in the grit. And then secondly, the second part of the passage is an exhortation. Verses 28 to 38, uh, that shepherds are to shepherd. Uh, Paul exhorts the Ephesian elders to get on with the task of shepherding the church. So what are these elders? Let me quickly note a couple of things and then we'll spend a bit more time on how the passage defines them. Uh, First of all, the elders are many. See in verse 17, Paul doesn't send for the elder of the church He sends for the elders. Why? Because the New Testament pattern for church leadership is plural. In Acts 14.23 it says they appointed elders, plural, for each church. Not an elder for each church, but elders for each church. It's always the pattern, plurality of leadership. 
Uh, secondly, elders have many names. See it in verse 28. Uh, Paul says, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God. Now, Paul only talks to one group of people, the Ephesian elders, but he also calls them overseers. The Greek word episkopos, from which we get our English word bishop. These elders, they're bishops. And they're shepherds. Be shepherds. They're shepherds or pastors. Now, each of these names describes something of the role of, the, of these leaders, but it's the same group described. Now, in the church, there are to be a plurality of leaders who are called elders, they're called bishops, they're called pastors. And there's nothing to indicate um, a, a pastor with a group of elders or, or a bishop who oversees a group of churches. Each church has its own group of leaders and they're called elders and the same group is called bishops and the same group is called pastors. Now, so what are these elders? Well, I think in our passage we are shown that these are shepherds equipped with the word of God and placed by the spirit of God. Unpack that a little bit. Now, the elders are shepherds. We've got these different names, elders, overseers, uh, they're used here, but the dominant description here is elders as shepherds. It's the dominant description of leadership in the Bible. See, in the Psalms, in the history books, in the prophets, uh, full of shepherding. If I listen to this passage from Jeremiah 23, it says, Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to the shepherds who tend my people. Because you've scattered my flock and driven them away and have not bestowed care on them, I will bestow punishment on you for the evil you have done, declares the Lord. I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I've driven them and will bring them back to their pasture, where they will be fruitful and increase in number. I will place shepherds over them who will tend them. And they will no longer be afraid or terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. Jeremiah 23 is fulfilled. God has placed shepherds over his people to tend them and to shepherd them. In Jeremiah's time, the shepherds fail as shepherds. They fail to shepherd because they don't care for the sheep. They don't guard and protect the sheep because that's the job of a shepherd. It's always been the job of a shepherd right from the time of, of David, the young David who's fighting off bears and lions, right up to the modern day. That's the job of a shepherd. Now, I recently read a book by a modern day shepherd in the Lake District. His name is James Rebanks and uh, he describes this occasion when he says his, his ewes are pregnant and he's shepherding them and he notices a, a, a commotion and he goes over and there's a, there's a ewe that runs in and it lies down and there's two Jack Russell dogs chasing it. And they jump on the ewe and they start biting its ears. And he grabs the dogs and he says, he writes, I considered smashing their heads against a rock and I was furious enough to have done it. That's what a shepherd does. Shepherds fight to protect their sheep. And if anything threatens to harm their flock, they rise to the challenge with rage. It's hard work to be a shepherd. In that book, James Rebanks describes those, that relentless labour throughout the year of shepherding, the, the struggles to keep going. And yet, and yet within that, there's this deeply implanted motivation that, that he and the other shepherds around him, that, that they're inheriting a way of life that goes back hundreds, even thousands of years. And they, they have this small part to play, you know, to look after the flock, to protect the flock, and pass it on to the next generation. 
And he writes, the first rule of shepherding, it's not about you, it's about the sheep and the land. And to be a shepherd isn't about roman- romantically wandering in the hills. To be a shepherd is about the sheep and, and working hard for the sheep. What does that mean in the life of a local church? Well, the writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews 13, 17 says in the ESV that the church leaders are keeping watch over your souls. The elder is a shepherd, a guardian. And verse 31 of our passage says, be on your guard. That's the task of the elders. Now, Andrew Wilson, um, a church leader, um, puts it like this. He says, our job as elders is to protect the church from harm. Danger, dispersal, division, drift, deviant doctrine, disobedience, destruction, and ultimately the devil. While we wait for the day when Jesus returns, conquers the accuser, and takes his rightful place as a shepherd to end all shepherds. Elders are shepherds. That's what they are, shepherds. They are shepherds equipped with the word of God and placed by the spirit of God. They are shepherds who are equipped with the word of God. Now how do shepherds go about their work? What's, what are the tools put at their disposal? That's a critical question. Now, when we talk about leadership in the church, uh, our thoughts must be drawn towards the Lord Jesus Christ, mustn't they? Now, the church is his bride. It's, the church is his beloved. Uh, the church is the one for whom he endured all the shame of the cross. The church is the body and Christ is the head. The church is the kingdom and Christ, he is the king. Christ has all authority over the church. And how does he wield his authority? Well, Christ rules his people by his word. And the Bible contains that authoritative declaration that's binding upon Christ's people. Though the Bible is the word of grace that creates the church and sustains the life of the church. And so Paul commands the elders to get to the work. He says, keep watch over all the flock. Be on your guard because there are savage wolves. There are people who distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. And where does Paul direct these elders? What source are they to draw from as they set to the work? Verse 32, he says, Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. How do they work at building the church? How do they work at guarding the church? Uh, How do they guard the saints so so they all reach that final day and receive the goal of their faith, the inheritance of salvation? The word of grace. Only the word of grace is able to do it. So Paul drives the elders to the word. When Paul instructs Timothy about the qualifications for elders in 1 Timothy 3.2, he says an elder must be able to teach. In Titus chapter 1, uh, as Titus is to get the new churches in Crete into order by appointing elders, he says an elder must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as, as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Elders are equipped with the word of God. They're, they're equipped as teachers, uh, as correctors, as refuters. Uh, but also, elders are equipped with the word of God as they embody it in example. Uh, the, the classic passages about eldership, you may be familiar with them. 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, 1 Peter 5. In, in those passages, we find these lists of character qualifications required of an elder. Uh, elders are, are qualified by their character more than their skill set. And when I was first called to be an elder of a church, it was a church called Kennet Valley Free Church in Reading, uh, I, I went down to the New Forest for a day. 
uh, to prayerfully um, consider the calling and um, to examine myself against the characteristics required of an elder. It was a very, very depressing day. Really, really sobering. And there's something crushing as you try to compare yourself to these lists. I've had lots of conversations over the years about how prohibitive it feels. Uh, unreachable it feels. And there's something about being an elder that makes that feel very uncomfortable. But I think the thing to see about these lists is that they're not setting an unreachable standard. That there's something about these lists that is normative for every believer. There's nothing in these lists that is not required of every Christian. That the characteristics required of an elder are the characteristics to be expected of a life that's been taken hold of by the grace of Christ. Or to put that another way, elders are to be those who live out the gospel, who embody the teaching of the word of God. And Paul says to Timothy, set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith and purity. In Peter's letter, in chapter 5, verse 2, he, he speaks to the elders and he says, be examples to the flock. And one guy writing about eldership says this, he says, God has called elders to be men worth imitating. A healthy local church typically has many people, men and women, whose example we could follow. But when a church appoints a man to be an overseer, it is formally saying, here is an official, church-recognized example of a mature follower of Jesus. He's not the only example, not a perfect example, and not necessarily the best example in the congregation for every single Christian virtue, but an elder is a duly designated model nonetheless. And so Paul commands the Ephesian elders, before he says, keep watch over the flock, he says, keep watch over yourselves. The shepherds are first sheep, fallible, under the same word that they minister to others. And Paul writes to Timothy, says, watch your life and doctrine closely. Not just your doctrine, but your life and doctrine. And the reason is, he says, persevere in them, your life and your doctrine, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, elders are equipped for their task with the word of God by teaching and by example. These elders, they are shepherds equipped with the word of God and they are placed by the spirit of God. See in verse 28, don't we? Keep watch over all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. That can't be more clear, can it? Our overseers, uh, our elders are made and appointed by the Holy Spirit. Now, how does the Spirit do that? Well, God rules his church by his word. And so it seems to me that the Holy Spirit appoints elders in two ways. First of all, by stipulating what qualifies someone to be an elder. And secondly, by assigning authority to designate someone as an elder. Let me explain. Uh, firstly, the Spirit stipulates in the Bible the person who's qualified to be an elder. And the Bible tells very clearly what are the character qualifications. We mentioned those already. And those lists in 1 Timothy and Titus. Uh, secondly, there are, there are some skills required. Uh, there's a, the requirement to be able to teach, and 1 Timothy 3, 4, he must manage his family well. Uh, thirdly, he must be a he. I was going to say more about that now. I think you looked at that a little bit earlier on in the year. Uh, fourthly, uh, he must want to do it. 1 Timothy 3, verse 1 says, Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. You need to be careful with this one, I think. Now, the desire to be an elder is part of the qualification for an elder, but it's a desire to be an elder in the way that the Bible describes what an elder is. 
It is not a desire to be something that's not an elder. It's not a desire to, to, be, to have influence. It's not a desire to be up the front with people listening to you. It's not the desire to have people follow you. It's not the desire to have all the things done in your way. It's a desire to care for the sheep. That's what Paul models in Acts 20. In verse 31, he's showing the example to these elders. He says, remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Driven by deep compassion. That's the desire. In 2 Corinthians 1, this is how he puts it. He says, not that we lord it over your faith. If someone desires to be lord over the church or to be in charge, that's not the right desire. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. Helpers of your joy. That's the desire. That's the the compassion-fueled desire. A desire that will drive you to tears, to urge people not to fall away from Christ. A desire that longs to see people stand firm to the end in Christ. A, A desire to work as hard as it takes. One writer says, one reason there are so few shepherd elders or good church elderships is that generally speaking, men are spiritually lazy. Paul's speech to the Ephesian elders confronts laziness. He bought the church with his own blood. Richard Baxter, the Puritan, said, can you not hear Christ saying, did I die for these people and will you refuse to look after them? Were they worth my blood? And are they not worth your labour? Desire. You must want to do it. The Spirit stipulates in the Bible the person qualified to be an elder. And then the Spirit himself raises up such people in local churches. He gives that gospel growth. He imparts the gifts that he prescribes. He shapes the desires of certain men. And then the Spirit appoints elders by assigning authority to designate someone as an elder. In Matthew 16 and 18, uh, it shows that authority is given to the whole congregation. That the whole church membership uh, are given authority to guard the what and the who of the gospel. Uh, the, the what of the gospel, what the gospel is, the message of the Bible, the doctrine. And then the who, to, to guard who it is who belongs to that gospel and who does not. And so when Paul writes to the church in Galatia, There's a problem in the church of false teaching. There's a problem that a different gospel is being taught. There's no gospel at all. So Paul doesn't write to the leaders. He writes to the church. It's the church's job to deal with this. The membership of the church is to guard the what of the gospel. And yet the teaching responsibility is given to the elders. And so I take that to mean that the whole membership is responsible for choosing the elders who will faithfully teach the what of the gospel. And if they don't, It's the church's responsibility to remove them. And if we take the whole balance of scripture, then I think it points towards in the church a a mixed form of governance. Now next week you're looking at the subject of membership and then discipline. So there'll be a chance to explore that a little bit more. So for now, just to see that the Bible assigns authority to designate someone as an elder to the membership of the church. Elders are placed by the Spirit of God. In in practice, that means the whole membership are to be looking for and praying uh, for men who have the right desire and the character and the gifting. And when you see such men, when the Spirit raises such men up among you, you all have the responsibility to call them as elders. What are these elders? 
They are shepherds equipped with the word of God and placed by the Spirit of God. And what does that mean for you today at Christchurch Campbell? Uh, you know the saying, uh, there's no such thing as bad weather, only unsuitable clothing. Apparently originally tri- attributed to um, Alfred Wainwright, famous for his walking around the Lake District. Now, the church is destined for storms. You might not want to call it bad weather, just call it tribulations if you like. But you can be sure, there will be all kinds of things that will buffet you and they will batter you. They will batter your faith. It's going to be the course of history until Christ returns. It's only going to get worse. So Wainwright's saying is helpful. And when you know there will be storms, you put on appropriate clothing. Now don't limp naively into trouble. Don't just drift away. Jesus Christ has appointed his churches to have elders. It's one of his means of grace. It's one of the pieces of suitable clothing to put on to help to weather the storm. And so your elders are a gift to be treasured and prayed for and loved and helped. Now, of course, if your elders drift from the gospel, if they fail in conduct or in doctrine, you have to remove them. But if that's not the case, then Hebrews 13, 17 says this. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. Let's pray. Our great Heavenly Father, we praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you for for the blood that he shed uh, to buy us into this wonderful kingdom that will last into eternity called the church. Lord, I pray that you will help each of us to know how your word speaks to us. And we thank you for the gift of elders. Thank you for the elders here at Camborne. And I pray for your blessing on them in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, why don't you take um, a couple of minutes just to talk to people around you, and then I think the practice is to take some questions, if that's helpful. So I'll give you a couple of minutes, then I'll call back some questions. Hello. Hi. I wasn't here with the meeting, so I just Why is it only men that can be elders? Or he has to be a he, is what I'm wondering. Um, yeah, great. Thank, thank you for that question. Um, I, I, I mentioned that only very briefly, um, partly because I think you've done some teaching on the role of men and women um, uh, earlier. I mean, I mean, very briefly, that is the, the situation that we have, so... Um, men are appointed as elders in the church. And I think it, it just reflects that, um, that, that bigger biblical pattern of, of, of male headship. Um, yeah. Great. Thank you. Thanks for the question.
don't have anything to say. Uh, Rich, thanks very much. If, if yeah. what would you say to, um, you know, thanks, you, you, you've clearly kind of helped us to see the importance of good elders for the church. So what, do you, what would you say to guys here about considering that, aspiring to that? How would they, you say, say, you know, like you're walking the new forest, like how would, the, how, how would they even begin to start to think about eldership? Yeah, thank you. Um, uh, off the top of my head, I think I, I would say, say two things um, to that question, which is a great question. Um, I think, I think that every man in the church should aspire to be what is qualified for an elder because, as I said, I think that the qualifications for an elder are what is expected of every, every Christian person. Um, and so I think men should aspire to that. They should um, look to, to set that as the, the standard, the example that, that they're, they're striving towards. Um, and so, so I don't think it should be the case of kind of um, should I or should I not be an elder. It should be a everyone should want to be an elder and should be striving towards that. Um, but then I think I, w- I would probably say I'd, I'd put the weight on the rest of the church community to be um, coming alongside people and identifying as the Spirit is raising up such people um, to work together to, to do that. So, yeah. yeah. So, are you, so, are you so, people should be looking at other guys and thinking, this guy could be an elder. Or the way, the way I see this guy interact the way I see him in his home actually I, I want to talk to other people about the fact that I think this guy would be a good elder is, is, that, is that what you're yeah, yeah. So, 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 so I think based, based upon those, those two realities that the church is in a time of tribulation the yep. church is inestimably precious mm. um, as Christ loves the church we ought to love the church too mm. so we all ought to be praying for the church and one of the things we ought to be praying for is for shepherds to be appointed to protect and guard the church and teach the church in the gospel um, so so I think everyone in the church should be praying about it um, and having eyes wide open to, to look out for, for people who have that. And, and as they see that, to pray for that person in particular. Um, yeah. Right. Super. So I hand back to you, Ben. <laughs>